If you have your copies of scripture with you, would you please turn to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai is the third to last book of the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at Haggai chapter 1, um, verses 7 through 15. But for the sake of context, we'll read the entire chapter from verse 1. So again, that's Haggai chapter 1. This is God's most holy and precious word, Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? while this house lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Give us your spirit and illuminate our hearts and our minds that we may understand and be convicted by your word tonight. Fill us with your truth and help us to see you and love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I were to ask you, what is the greatest priority in life? What would you say? Some of you would probably reference the Westminster Shorter Catechism and say that it's the glory of God. And I would agree. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Or to put it another way, our greatest priority is the worship and glory of God. But what if I were to follow up with, with that and ask, does your life reflect this priority, the worship and glory of God? Then what would you say? I would hope that that would cause you to be more introspective, to examine your own hearts and your lives, and consider what it is that your lives are truly saying about the priorities in your heart. Is your life centered around glorifying God? Or is, it, is something else in your life taking priority over God and his glory? 
Now, the question of priorities is at the heart of our passage for tonight. In Haggai, we see Israel confronted by God through his prophet Haggai with a call to examine their own hearts and consider what it is that they are prioritizing and whether those priorities are right before God. Now, to give some context on Haggai, this is post-return from Babylonian exile. By the time Haggai prophesied and proclaimed the word of God, it had been 18 years since their return to Jerusalem from Babylon. They had returned to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And two years after they returned, the construction work to rebuild the temple had begun. But facing external pressure and discouragement, Israel soon stopped rebuilding the temple. And 16 years have passed since they stopped. 16 years have passed, and the temple continues to remain in ruins. And we come to Haggai chapter 1. And as we unpack the text and look at the lives of these Israelites, we'll realize that we are not too different from them. That we, like the Israelites, are prone to stray from what is of utmost priority in our lives, the worship and glory of God. And so if you're writing notes as you follow along, here is an outline for us. We have three points. First, we'll look at Israel's misplaced priorities, their misplaced priorities. Second, we'll look at how God disciplined Israel, God's discipline of Israel. And third, we'll look at Israel's return to obedience, their return to obedience. So to repeat the three points, Israel's misplaced priorities, God's discipline of Israel, and Israel's return to obedience. So to start off, um, Israel's misplaced priorities. Israel's priorities were flipped. So let's read from verse 7 again. Verse 7 reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So here God is calling on Israel to consider their ways. He is calling on Israel to examine their own hearts and reflect on what it is that they are doing wrong. And so where was it that Israel had gone wrong? What was it that Israel did for God to have sent Haggai to rebuke and correct Israel? Now, if you were to look at the everyday lives of these Israelites, at first glance, they don't seem to be doing anything particularly wrong. There were no signs of explicit blatant sin, and in fact, they seem to have been doing a lot of the right things. It's important to realize that these Israelites in Jerusalem voluntarily left Babylon. They made the choice to leave their probably very comfortable and prosperous lives in Babylon, and they chose to leave that life to come to a ruined Jerusalem, made desolate by the Babylonian conquest. And they returned to Jerusalem because they wanted to rebuild the temple for the Lord. And these Israelites were also a select group. Not every Israelite in Babylon returned. Many chose to stay to continue in the comfortable lifestyles that they had established in Babylon. Only some Israelites chose to return. And so these Israelites, they had a certain fervor and zeal for God. And they displayed that zeal through their actions. So now keep your finger here in Haggai, and we're going to turn to Ezra chapter 4. And in Ezra chapters 1 through 4, it records a lot of the context that lead up to Haggai's prophecies. And we see these Israelites' zeal for God through these chapters in Ezra, from bringing free will offerings for the rebuilding of the temple, to rebuilding the altar and offering burnt offerings, and laying down the foundation of the temple, and even singing songs of praise for God in Ezra chapter 3. And these first few chapters of Ezra are filled with Israel's display of zeal for God. 
And there's a specific incident in Ezra chapter 4 that I want us to look at that really highlights Israel's allegiance to God. And so let's read Ezra chapter 4, starting from verse 1. It reads, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And so we see here when the returned exiles started to rebuild the temple, a group of people, Ezra calls them adversaries or enemies of Israel. They came to Israel asking to build a temple with them. But Israel refused their help and wanted nothing to do with the adversaries. And so why? Why does Israel refuse their help? It was because these adversaries were the Samaritans. They were the descendants of Israelites who had intermingled and intermarried with pagan foreigners. And if there's one thing that these Israelites learned from the failures of previous generations, it's that Israelites must not intermingle with non-Israelites. The failures of the previous generations of Israel before the exile started in large part because they had intermingled with and married pagan foreigners. And these foreigners led Israel into pagan worship. And it was Israel's idolatry that eventually led to God pouring out his judgment on Israel through the Babylonian conquest and what eventually led to their exile from their homeland. And so these Israelites who had just returned from that exile had no desire to fall into the same idolatrous worship that their fathers had fallen to. So they didn't even want a hint of intermingling with the Samaritans. And though the Samaritans claimed to worship the Lord, that was not true. Their supposed worship was mixed in with the pagan idolatry that um, they learned from their, um, their fathers, and w- which was not true worship at all. <clears throat> and Israel had no desire to fall into that. And so we see this post-exile Israel was nothing like the Israel of old. And there's no reason to doubt their zeal for, for and allegiance to God. And so where was it that Israel had gone wrong? And so let's read the next two verses in Ezra chapter 4. We'll read Ezra 4 verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so we see here that Israel faced external pressure and became afraid to build the temple. They feared man and were afraid. And we see down in Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, that the rebuilding actually stopped completely until the second year of the reign of Darius, which is when Haggai chapter 1 starts. And so let's go back to our passage in Haggai 1, and we'll continue in our passage. So let's read from Haggai 1, verse 8. It reads, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And so according to the Lord, 
Israel's greatest priority should have been to rebuild the temple so that God could take pleasure in it and that he may be glorified. And remember, the temple was where God dwelt and met with his people. It was Israel's designated place for corporate worship where the people gathered together to worship God together as a congregation. And so rebuilding the temple should have been Israel's first priority if the worship of God was truly their greatest priority. But instead of rebuilding the temple, Israel had become busy with their own homes. In verse 9, the ESV translated it as Israel being busy with their own houses. And the NASV translates it as, while each of you runs to his own house. And so when it says that Israel is busy with their own houses, there's a sense that they're running and rushing about with a sense of urgency. And though they had a sense of urgency for their own homes, they had no urgency for the house of the Lord. And in fact, they were making excuses and putting off the rebuilding project. Look back up at verse 2. Verse 2 reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They were making the excuse that it's not yet time to rebuild, rebuild the temple. It's not that they no longer desired to rebuild the temple. They just wanted to put it off, to delay it. And in some sense, that may have been the realistic decision. There was a lot to do. Rebuilding the temple is a very big project. If Israel is busy with rebuilding the temple, who is going to do the farming? Who is going to build homes to live in? Who will protect them from the external pressures that they were facing? These are all legitimate questions. But in the end, it was still just an excuse. Israel had placed themselves over the priority of corporate worship and the glory of God. Their priorities were flipped. And they were trying to rationalize their misplaced priorities. And this happened in some part because they brought their lifestyles from Babylon to Jerusalem. Because there was no temple in Babylon. There was no corporate worship going on there. If there was any worship of God happening in Babylon, it was in the privacy and safety of each Israelite's own home. But now that they were in Jerusalem, they should have gone back to the corporate worship that God had prescribed and commanded through Moses. Israel should have reconstructed the temple so that corporate worship could be reestablished, as it should have been. But they didn't. They probably rationalized it in their own minds. Uh, we can wait another year to rebuild the temple. We've been worshiping without a temple for over 70 years now. What difference does a year or two make? When our circumstances improve, then we'll, re- we'll rebuild. God can wait. Now, I don't think that Israel had become completely apostate. Israel was probably still showing piety to God in every other way. They continued to show devotion to God in their own homes, just like they did in Babylon. And they may have even continued to offer burnt offerings on the altar that was rebuilt in Ezra chapter 3. It was just that Israel compromised in this seemingly one small way. But this one compromise led to their priorities becoming completely flipped. Israel became busy with their own homes and their own lives. They were too busy for God. Instead of seeking God's kingdom first, they sought their own kingdom. And we see more specifically where their priorities had gone in verses 4 and 6. Let's look at verse 4 first. It reads, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And so Israel had claimed that it was not yet time to build God's house, 
but they had time to build and live in paneled houses. So what then are paneled houses? Paneled houses were houses that were overlaid in wood, and in those days, wood panelings were a sign of wealth and status. They were usually reserved for much grander buildings, like the temple that Solomon had built. And it was really rare for regular homes to be overlaid in wood. And the wood that was used to overlay their, lay their houses was probably premium material. I'll read Ezra chapter 3, verse 7 for us. You don't need to turn there. Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, it reads, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So as a reminder, the context here in Ezra chapter 3 is that Israel is preparing to rebuild the temple 16 years before Haggai's prophecies. And in preparation to rebuild the temple, cedar trees from Lebanon were imported to Jerusalem. And during those times, the cedar trees of Lebanon were the premium wood used as building material. When Solomon built the temple, he had cedar imported to use as building material. It was a high-end material in ancient Israel, and it was really only imported for grand buildings like the temple. And this was because it would be really costly to bring all that wood to Jerusalem. From Lebanon to Jerusalem a couple, is a couple hundred, hundred miles, give or take. Today, that would be a short 30-minute flight or a few hours drive. But there were no planes or trucks or cars back then, and actually, the cedar needed to be brought in by sea on ships. It would require a large amount of money and labor to bring in that cedar. And as we see in Ezra chapter 3, this premium wood, the cedar was imported specifically to rebuild the temple with. But where did all that cedar go once the temple construction project was abandoned? It went to building the Israelites' paneled houses. They probably thought to themselves, all of this cedar is going to waste, so let's use it to build our houses. It sounds reasonable, right? They wouldn't want such precious materials to go to waste. But this is how far their compromise had caused them to fall. The wood that was brought in to build the temple was used to build their own homes. They made excuses that they don't have homes yet, they're not settled down yet, we should delay the building of the temple. They probably figured that they could bring in cedar wood again later when it finally came time to build the temple. And so Israel had the urgency to build nice, fancy houses for themselves, but they didn't have the urgency to prioritize building a house for God. And in addition to that, we see further in verse 6 that their priorities included money and the pursuit of worldly riches. And so let's read verse 6 again. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And so when you read this verse, it's easy to focus on the things that are going wrong here. An unfruitful harvest, a lack of food and drinking clothes, and never being able to save up money. But notice the language here. It says, you have sown much, that Israel has sown seeds plentifully. It gives a picture of someone who pours all their focus, energy, and time into work. And notice how everything here is centered around worldly prosperity. Work, food, drink, shelter, and money. Israel had busied themselves with these things in pursuing financial stability. But somehow all of their pursuits and endeavors seemed to be frustrated and bring back nothing. And this probably led to even more excuses. 
we don't have the money and resources. We're so busy trying to put food on the table. Where will we find the time and resources to build the house of God? But then in the end, they're all just excuses to cover out their sin of prioritizing themselves over the glory of God. And we ourselves are not too different from them, are we? We make excuses all the time too. How many of you have said this before? I was really busy this week and didn't read the Bible. I think everyone has made that excuse at least once. Or what about this? I had a really long work day and I'm really tired. I think I'm going to skip midweek worship. I've definitely made that excuse before. Or what about this one? My kid's nap time is during Sunday worship. Maybe we can skip out on worship this week. I haven't made that excuse yet, but I may be tempted to this coming year. And what about Dick's excuse? Living in the barrier is so expensive. Maybe just this month, I won't tithe. God doesn't need my money, right? And not to say that any of these things are inherently sinful. I'm not saying that missing a worship service or missing a day of Bible reading or adjusting your finances means that you're in sin. The point is, are there things in your heart that have taken precedence over God that are manifesting as excuses on the surface? Are you using excuses to rationalize the misplaced priorities in your heart? And if you are, what then are these things that have taken over as a priority of your heart? Is it work? Are you pouring all of your time and energy into work that you have nothing left for God? What are you doing all that for? For a greater sense of achievement? For money? There's much greater and lasting satisfaction in Christ than the temporary satisfaction that comes from worldly success. There are times when you may be really busy with work, just due to the nature of some jobs. You may have busy seasons, but I don't think anyone can 100% say honestly that they are too busy for God. It is simply an excuse. Or maybe your life is centered around your family instead of the worship of God. Your lives revolve around your newborn's sleep schedule or your kids' sports and ballet programs. And in your family's busy schedules, there's no time for worship. Family and children are gifts from God. They're a blessing to us. But we cannot put the gift of blessings over the giver of those blessings. God must always be first in our personal and family lives. And what about your finances? Are money and possessions your priority over God? And I think one easy test is you ask yourselves, are you tithing faithfully? Is tithing a regular part of your worship, whether it's weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly? Do you tithe sacrificially and cheerfully? Or is tithing more of an afterthought for you? Proverbs 3 verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Do you practice the principle of first fruits by giving to God first? Or does he get your leftovers after you've used your money on yourselves? And I know that living here in the Bay it's hard not to get sucked into the focus on worldly prosperity. And with the cost of living and home prices here in the Bay, there's a real temptation to hold tightly to our finances. But we must prioritize the worship of God first in our finances as well. And remember that he is the one who has blessed us with those finances. Now, I want to make one thing really clear. Work, family, finances, these are all good things. They are blessings from God. There's nothing wrong with pursuing 
enjoying these things. But when we put the good things above God, it's when we turn them into bad things and into idols. Our number one priority should always be the worship and glory of God over all else. And this is where Israel failed. They failed to prioritize the worship of God. And so God, as the loving Father, He disciplined them. And that that brings us to the second point in our outline. God's discipline of Israel. He disciplined Israel for their misplaced priorities. And so let's continue our passage and read verses 10 and 11. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. And so we see here that because of Israel's misplaced priorities, God brings calamity upon Israel. It says in Haggai that the heavens withheld the rains and the earth without its produce, and that God called for a drought. And so we now see the reason for all the frustrations that Israel was facing in verse 6. Because of their disobedience that stemmed from their misplaced priorities, God brought curses upon Israel. And when Israel heard this message from Haggai, that God was the one who brought calamity upon them, it should have sounded very familiar to them. It should have brought to mind God's promises to Israel through Moses many years ago. So keep your place in Haggai, and let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God starts off with promising blessings upon Israel for obedience. He also promises curses for disobedience. And so we'll read Deuteronomy chapter 28 from verse 38. It reads, You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but shall neither drink of the white nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. These are just a few of the many curses that are promised to Israel if they disobey. And it says here, just to sum it up, there will be a shortage of grain, wine, and oil. And so let's go back to Haggai chapter 1 and look at verse 11 again. Haggai 1 verse 11 says, And I have called for a drought on the land of the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil. And so let's pause there. We see it here again as well. A lack of grain, wine, and oil. This is the same curse that was promised to Israel for disobedience in Deuteronomy 28. And we can make the same link to the rest of verse 11 with the curses of Deuteronomy 28 on the ground, on man, and beast, and on all their labors. And Israel would have made this connection when they heard this. And so they knew that their misfortunes were a direct consequence of their sin. And so the calamity that God brought upon them served to reveal their sins to them. And there's more to the curses than simply revealing their sins. Through the calamities, God was teaching Israel that no matter how much time and energy they poured into sowing seeds, ultimately, He is the one who makes the sunshine and the rain to fall. He is the one who causes the seed to sprout and take root and grow into crops. He is the one in control. Israel had become self-sufficient and self-reliant, thinking it was their efforts alone that would bring about a bountiful harvest. 
And we also have the same temptation to think that our worldly success is something that we achieved apart from God. We think that because we studied, studied hard to get our degrees, because we worked hard at our jobs and careers, that anything we achieve in this world, we think that it's ours and ours alone. We think of our jobs, our careers, our money, our possessions, our houses as something we earned by ourselves. But this cannot be further from the truth. All of it ultimately came from God. He gave you the opportunities that led you to where you are today, and he gave you your body and your mind. That we're even physically able to work is by the grace of God. And so as Israel prioritized themselves over God, they had also forgotten the sovereignty and blessings of God. And God sent misfortunes upon Israel to show them the errors of their ways. They realized now that they had sinned the same sins of idolatry as their fathers. Maybe not as explicitly and blatantly as their fathers did, but their priorities were in the wrong place. And when priorities are flipped, it is idolatry before God. Because you put something else as your God before our Lord. And so the question that remained was, what should Israel do now? And God gave the answer to that in verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In verse 8, God is telling Israel, stop making excuses. Stop putting off rebuilding the temple. Stop disobeying me. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Build the temple now. Obey me now. Then I will be pleased. This was it. Israel sinned. God showed them their sin. And now he is offering them the opportunity to turn back in repentance and obey. This is God's loving mercy toward Israel. He is the loving father who disciplines his children. He could have left Israel to continue to suffer in the curses he poured out on Israel and the land. It was completely within God's rights to do so. But he calls on them to draw near and obey. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah comes right after Haggai in the Old Testament. And just to give some context as you turn there, Zechariah the prophet is a contemporary of Haggai and started prophesying shortly after Haggai did. And so the context is the same. The temple needs to be rebuilt. And so we'll read Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. It reads, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And so we see here God telling Israel to return. God wants Israel to turn back to him to repent. Brothers and sisters, this is God's abundant mercy. When we sin, yes, there are consequences to our sins. But God desires for us to repent from our sins and to turn to him in humble obedience. We are like Israel. Just like how these Israelites sin the same sins of idolatry as their fathers, we will often find ourselves struggling with the same sins as well. And God will discipline you, whether it's through the rebuke of his word or through the rebuke of those around you. And every time God calls you to draw near to him, there's always mercy to be found at the throne of grace. We simply need to come to before him in repentance and humble obedience. And we see that this is what Israel actually did. They repent and turn to God in obedience. Which brings us to the third and final point of our outline for today. Israel's return to obedience. So let's turn back to our passage in Haggai and we'll read from Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. 
<clears throat> Haggai 1 verse 12 reads, Then Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And so we see here in verse 12 that it starts with listing Zerubbabel and Joshua. And Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah, and Joshua is listed as the high priest. And so these two men were the civil and spiritual leaders of this remnant of Israel that had returned from exile. And they're the ones responsible for leading the people of Israel and overseeing the rebuilding of the temple. And as leaders, they're held responsible for the people that they lead. We see this all the time throughout Scripture, that the leaders are held accountable for the faithfulness of the people that they're leading. The way the leaders go, we see the people go. And if the leaders are faithful, the people follow suit in faithfulness. If the leaders are unfaithful, the people follow suit in unfaithfulness. And the leaders are held accountable for their people's unfaithfulness. And though Zerubbabel and Joshua had led Israel unfaithfully these past 16 years in not prioritizing the worship of God, we now see in verse 12 that they lead Israel back to repentance. And so let's read that again. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And so we see Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. They had turned to God in obedience. God rebuked Israel through his prophet Haggai, and Israel saw their sins before God and repented. And at the end of verse 12, it says that the people feared the Lord. And there's definitely a sense of reverence here as they stand before their Lord, their God. But I think there's a bit of holy dread and terror mixed in knowing that they had sinned against a perfectly holy God. There was a part of them that feared the judgment of God. We saw earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that, um, that there are curses for disobedience promised to Israel. And among those curses are, is actually exile. And in the back of their minds, they were probably thinking, will we be going back to exile for our sin of idolatry? But their fears are immediately relieved, and God comforts them in the next verse. Verse 13 reads, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. God tells Israel, I am with you. He will not leave Israel or forsake them. Even though Israel had committed the sin of idolatry and forsaken God, he is faithful. He called Israel back to him and comforted and strengthened them. And in saying, I am with you, God is saying that he will provide for and protect Israel as they obey the call to rebuild the temple and that ultimately he will be the one to bring the rebuilding of the temple to completion. And we see this in Ezra chapter 5. Let's turn again to Ezra. I'll leave your finger here in Haggai and we'll turn to Ezra chapter 5. And we'll read verse 2. Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. Ezra 5, verse 2, it reads, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And so we see here that God sent his prophets to support and encourage the people as they rebuilt the temple. 
And even though we see external opposition again in verses 3 and 4, Israel continued to rebuild the temple because God was with them and strengthening them. So go down to verse 5. We'll read verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. And so verse 5 is saying that the eye of God was on Israel, and he protected and strengthened Israel to continue to obey, despite the external pressures. They have fallen to these pressures before, but now depending on the Lord's strength, they continue to persevere through the opposition and remain faithful to God. And in Later in Ezra chapter 6, we see that the temple is finished under the guiding hand of God. He is the one who brought his work to completion. And not only did God enable Israel to continue to be faithful, we also see that it was God who enabled Israel to obey in the first place. So let's go back to our passage in Haggai, and we'll finish up our time in verses 14 and 15. Haggai 1 verses 14 and 15 read, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. It says here in verse 14 that God stirred up the spirits of the Israelites. He is the one who gave them the spirit to obey. Only God can change people's hearts, and he changed the hearts of Israelites to enable them to obey him. God had started the work in Israel's hearts to cause them to take that initial step of obedience, and he continued his work in their hearts, leading them in faithful obedience and devotion to him as they restarted and finished the rebuilding of the temple. And so just to summarize everything, Israel had strayed away from the greatest priority, the worship and glory of God. They had sinned against God, but God not only revealed their sins to them, he also called them back to him. And not only did he call them back, he enabled them to obey and to continue to be faithful in prioritizing his glory. So brothers and sisters, is this not the story of our lives? We were once dead in our sins, deserving of the holy wrath of God and eternal punishment. But God showed his infinite grace to us and gave us regenerate hearts. It was only because God gave us new hearts that we saw our own sinfulness and were able to believe and have faith in the perfect and sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And in Christ, we have been made clean before God, having been made righteous, not by our own, but by the righteousness of God, of Christ. And he who began the work of salvation in us will bring it to completion. God will continue his sanctifying work in us through the grace and power of Jesus Christ. He is the one who will enable us to worship and glorify him and persevere and remain faithful. Friends, we will falter just as Israel faltered in their devotion to the Lord. But there is always grace and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. God is faithful to forgive if we confess our sins. We can approach the throne with confidence, not in ourselves, but in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our perfect mediator and great high priest who always intercedes for us on our behalf. We don't have to be afraid like the Israelites feared. Christ is the one who will stand before us and declare to the Father, I died for him. I shed my blood for him. He is mine. So friends, if there are any idols in your hearts that you have not confessed, 
if you have prioritized other things above the worship and glory of God, turn back to God now. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to obey. Do not delay in obedience. Do not put off repentance. Turn back to God. And to the unbelievers who are here today, let me ask you this. What are you living for? If not for the worship and glory of God, what is it that you live for? Is it for money, for knowledge, for prestige, for pleasures? All of these things are fleeting, and they don't give lasting satisfaction. At the end of your life, you can't take them with you. They are just vain pursuits. But there is eternal and infinite satisfaction in knowing Christ, far greater than anything this world can offer. So come, come and turn to Christ. Repent of your sins and place your faith in the work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And I say the same message to you. The time to repent is now. And then for all of us, what do we do after we repent? Worship. Worship and glorify God with your lives. That is the greatest priority in life. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that we often place things before you. A lot of times we don't prioritize your worship and instead prioritize other things in life. And in doing so, we sin against you. But we know that you are faithful to forgive and that by the power of your grace, we are able to walk faithfully. So fill us with your spirit and guide us to walk in obedience and to give you the glory you rightfully deserve. Help us to look not at ourselves, but to your son, Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.